God, I thank you for the gift of the Bible, uh, having the, the record of, of what you have done um, through the ages, from the very beginning uh, up uh, through the early years of the church and to find out what you will do uh, into the future. This is such an incredible blessing that you've given us. Thank you for your revelation of Scripture. And I pray that you would now open our minds and our ears so that we can hear it and discern and understand what it's saying and then send your Spirit to open our hearts so that we would receive it with joy and with thanksgiving and accept it as your word for us that we might become your people more faithfully. We pray this in the name of Christ and asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments where you, uh, things have changed and you think, well, how on earth did we get to this point? Um, last weekend, uh, I had one of those moments. Emily and I had traveled to St. Paul, Minnesota for her brother's wedding and packed up all the kids and took them out there. And, and on the way back, we uh, stayed in Wheaton, Illinois, where we had gone to college. We stayed there overnight, and, and we got the rare treat of getting to uh, go on a little breakfast date, just the two of us. This is a, a very rare kind of occasion. Uh, and it's especially, it's not just a, a luxury because it's a, a breakfast date, but we got to go to what I consider to be the best breakfast restaurant in the world, a place called the Eclectic Cafe in downtown Wheaton, Illinois. This is the place where I first uh, told Emily I thought that we should perhaps be something more than just uh, friends. Uh, and it's the place where two and a half years later we celebrated our rehearsal dinner the day before our wedding. So this is a special, a special time for us. It was, there was something about the combination of having just come from a wedding and, and uh, celebrating a new marriage and then being back in our college town and, and uh, it just brought back this flood of memories of, of uh, early years of college and of dating and early years of marriage and, and living there. And, and then we went back to the place we were staying and loaded up three kids into car seats in a minivan and, and thinking, well, well, how did all this happen? <laughs> and, and don't worry, I, I know how it happened. You don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to have an awkward conversation in the hallway after the service here. It's just that being parents is such a normal part of life for us now. We're used to buckling kids into car seat. We're used to driving around in a minivan. We're used to changing diapers. It's just a normal part of life for us now. But but it hasn't always been like that. And being back in our college town and being able to go on a little date, the two of us, it showed us how much things had changed. We used to be just two kid college kids hanging out over a leisurely breakfast, but all of a sudden we've got you know, three kids and a minivan and a mortgage and a vocation, a career, all this stuff. And they go, well, how did all this come to be? Well, it's a little bit like that with the church too, right? I mean, for most of us, church is a normal part of, of life. You know, even if you didn't grow up in church, church has always been there. Church is an ordinary, normal part of the American cultural landscape. There, there have always been churches around. There have always been lots of churches around. You, you know this. There are Christians all over the place. But it wasn't always like this. There was a time when it was just Jesus and 12 disciples that he had called to follow him and, and then a crowd that kind of followed around and, and were seeking to find out who this Jesus really was. But from that small little beginning, now... There are Christians all over the world. The, the church is a global community of people who believe in the name of Jesus. So already today, Christians have gathered to meet in Japan and China and India and all over the world. Christians have already gathered today in the name of Jesus to worship him. How did this come to be? 
uh, the story of, of how the church grew from a small little gathering of the flawed followers of a Jewish teacher into this global community of worshipers of God is an incredible story, and the beginnings of it are told in the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to be studying uh, this fall, the book of Acts. The full title of, of Acts is Acts of the Apostles, although as we'll come to see as we get into the content of the book, it's probably a little bit better named something like the Acts of God, or if you want to lengthen the name out, Acts of God by the Holy Spirit through the church, which witnesses to the Messiah Jesus Christ, depending on how long you want to make the title of it. But we're going to study this book uh, together, the book of Acts together this fall and into uh, next year, so that we can see the incredible power of God behind the church. And I'm hoping that two things will come out of our time in Acts. Uh, On the one hand, I hope that God will use the story of Acts to bolster our faith, so that we can see that the foundation of the church is is solid. This isn't something that, that humans made up and that humans have perpetuated. This is something that is only here because of the power of God. So on the one hand, I hope that you will uh, have bolstered, renewed faith that God is the one behind the church. And then uh, at the same time, I, I pray that God will grow our expectation and our anticipation that he will work in power today like he did in the days of Acts. We're going to hear some incredible stories of God's power at work to change the world. And I, I hope that we'll gain expectation that that's the same God who's alive and active in and among us today. So again, an anticipation of God's great work in our day as well. So we're going to start with the first chapter of Acts, and we're going to learn two important things about the church's origins. Uh, but before we look at that, we've got to understand why this book was written in the first place. So if you haven't turned to Acts, this would be a good time uh, to do that. We'll start in Acts 1. We'll start in the first couple verses of chapter 1. Uh, this is how the book begins. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So right away, the first thing we learn as we open the book of Acts is that this is not a standalone book. He starts by saying, in my former book. So already the writer here is pointing to a previous volume. Acts is actually volume two of a two-volume work. Uh, The first volume is what we know as the Gospel of Luke. So if we're going to understand what Acts is about, the purpose of Acts, we've got to go back and and think of why, learn why Luke was writing uh, the Gospel of Luke in the first place. So if we turn back to Luke chapter 1, this is how he opens his Gospel account. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first, excuse me, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke Acts is written by a man named Luke, and he's primarily writing to someone named Theophilus. Uh, And because of the way he's addressed here at the beginning of Luke 1, he's not just being polite there, but it's probable that Theophilus was a man of, of wealth and possibly social status as well, some kind of social standing. So, uh, so he is interested in the Christian message, and Luke is writing specifically to him. But of course, the fact that uh, Luke and Acts are in our Christian canon today, in the Bible today, indicates that this was not just for Theophilus, but also for 
the whole church. But what I want to focus in on here is, is the purpose that Luke notes in Luke 1, 4 of why he's writing. He says right off the bat in Luke that, that he's not the first one and he's not the only one to write an account of the life of Jesus. In fact, we can look at the Bible and see we have the Gospel of Matthew, of Mark, and the Gospel of John. We've got three other Gospels in addition to Luke's Gospel. But he writes because he has undertaken a careful investigation of it. He wasn't there walking with Jesus when Jesus was on the earth, but he went and investigated the eyewitnesses. He, he talked to the people. He found out all this stuff about Jesus from the very beginning, and now he's going to write it down. So he's taken on the task of him by himself to carefully investigate the matter from the beginning all the way up to right now. And he decides to write this substantial 24-volume gospel of Luke, an account of all that Jesus taught and all that he did, followed by then a substantial 28-chapter account of how God carried on the ministry of Jesus through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Luke says he has scoured the eyewitnesses. He's carefully investigated all the elements of this message about Jesus, which means that his report is trustworthy. Now, why does he go to all this work of finding out uh, about Jesus, scouring all the eyewitnesses, all that? Why does he go to all this work? So that those who read it may know the certainty of the gospel message. So in Luke 1, 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, here's the thing. If you read what Luke writes and you say, okay, well, that's interesting, and then you move on with your life, you've totally missed his point in writing. See, this is what Jesus, or this is what Luke says about Jesus in his gospel. I encourage you to read this. This is an incredible story. Luke says that Jesus is, was a child born of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Not an ordinary child, but he was this child who was born of the, the power of the Spirit who grew into a man who proclaimed the kingdom of God through his teaching and through his powerful healing ministry. He was a man who showed that he was the Son of God, sent by God to seek and save those who are lost. And he sets his face resolutely toward the end of the gospel, toward the cross, toward his death, knowing that that was God's plan for salvation. See, Luke is making the point that Jesus is God's King. He is the Messiah sent to save the world. And, and he went and resolutely went to the cross. He died willingly on a cross. Read Luke's accounts of the Passion narrative as Jesus goes to the cross, you see that he goes willingly, he goes intentionally, he knows what's happening all the way throughout. And he dies on a Roman cross, an excruciating death. And then on the third day, God vindicates him by raising him from death to life. Jesus is resurrected, and then he appears to people afterward. He appears to his followers and says, well, look back at the Old Testament. This had to happen. The Messiah, God's king, had to suffer. He had to be raised to new life. In other words, Luke is saying, Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. So if Jesus is who Luke says he is, it demands a fundamental change for us. See, there are lots of kinds of, of books, right? There are lots of kinds of literature. Emma and I love books. And some of them are, are simply for entertainment. So we read uh, this British author named P.G. Woodhouse, and he writes these books about a man named uh, Bertie Wooster and his man Jeeves. Perhaps you've heard about Wooster and Jeeves. Uh, and these are just strictly for entertainment. You read them, you laugh, or at least we read them, we laugh because we think it's funny. And then we put it back on the shelf and we go on with our lives. It doesn't affect anything that we do in our everyday lives, 
other than perhaps trying to, to snag a couple lines of British humor in there and kind of carry those on. But, but you just put it away at the end. But that's not what Luke is writing about. He's not writing just to entertain you with a, a fascinating story, although the book of Acts is really a page turn, right? You start reading it, and you just want to keep finding out what happens next, what happens next. But it's not for entertainment. Luke is trying to do something to you. And nor is this a book for enrichment. This isn't to kind of gain more knowledge. My wife recently read this, this huge, thick biography of George Washington by Ron Chernow. It's like a thousand pages or something like that. And she learned a ton about the American Revolution. She learned a ton about George Washington. But at the end of the day, she puts it back on the shelf and she moves on with her life. Smarter, having more knowledge, having more understanding of history, but it doesn't affect her day-to-day life that much. Luke's not writing Luke Acts to give you more information or more knowledge. Nor is this kind of a self-help or a how-to kind of a manual. Right before our, our oldest son was born, I got this thing in the mail called a baby owner's manual. Someone had given this to me. It has great tips for you know, how to swaddle, how to change a diaper, how to give a bath. So I read that and I assimilated the information. But again, at the end of the day, I put it back on the shelf. I pick up some tips and principles from it, but it doesn't fundamentally alter my life. I can put it back and not think about it ever again. But Luke is saying, listen, this is a gospel. This is a good news account. It's announcing that there is a new king and that he is your king. That's what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying, you have a part in this story. I mean, that's the, the, the import of the book of Luke Acts together, and it ends with drawing you into this story of Jesus and the church. So if what he's saying about Jesus is true, it matters to you. It makes a difference for you. It demands a fundamental change in your life because now it's saying you have to, to bow to King Jesus. He is the one that God sent to save the world, which means that he is your king. Luke knows that with this kind of an extraordinary message, he has to take care to make sure he gets the facts straight so that you can actually believe it. And that's why he takes this, this painstaking account to look at all the eyewitnesses and talk to them and find out what happened from them all the way from the beginning, all the way through the ascension of Jesus in the early days of the church. So that's why he's writing. He's writing so that we can know for sure that this message about Jesus is a true message. So in Acts, the beginning of Acts, when he points back to Luke, to his former account, he's taking up the same purpose. He's saying Acts 2 is written so that you have certainty about the message of Jesus. So as Luke, he recorded all, in the Gospel of Luke, he recorded all that Jesus did and all that he taught. Now in Acts, he's showing the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus will be the main character in this, even though he's only on stage, so to speak, in the first several verses. He'll be the main character all throughout the book. Everything hinges on Jesus. So we have to understand at the outset, Luke's purpose is to give us total confidence in the Gospel. He wants us to know for certain that this message about Jesus is true. Now that's important because some of us are not sure about this message. Maybe there's some parts of it that really draw us in, but we're not quite sure what to make of Jesus. We're not quite sure what to make of the church. After all, the Bible does say some extraordinary things. Jesus says some things that, that sometimes catch us off guard, and we're not sure what to make of them. Well, this book, this book of Acts, will be good for those of us who are questioning to find out who Jesus really is and why that matters for our lives. See, Luke wants you, like his first reader, to know for certain that this message about Jesus is true. So it starts with reading the Gospel of Luke and finding out who Jesus is and why that matters. And then it continues in the book of Acts as we'll take it up to find out where the church comes from. 
Because see, the church is the one who bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, God's saving king. So let's look then at, at where the church comes from, the origins of the church, so we can see the solid foundation that it's built on. So we're going to get into the text now. First, looking at the commission of the church. Look with me at, at Acts 1. We'll read verses 3 through 11. Luke says of Jesus, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So we learn a lot from this initial uh, section in the book of Acts. We learn that that God's Spirit will come and will empower Jesus' followers. Uh, we learn that, that God's restoration of Israel is coming, but that Jesus' followers are not going to know the timing of it. We find out that Jesus will return. We find out that he, was in, he has ascended into heaven, that he will return the same way. But I want to focus on, on two uh, specific events here that Luke records. He highlights the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And, and these are two crucial pieces because both of these together show that Jesus is the king. That they establish his authority and they establish his reign over the world. So uh, in, in Luke 24, Jesus says this, that the Messiah has to suffer and then to enter his glory. So the resurrection and the ascension are about the Messiah entering into his glory. So let's look at how Luke highlights these. Uh, verse 3 highlights uh, the fact of the resurrection. It says, After his suffering, which is referring to his death, uh, and this is about Jesus, Jesus presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, when uh, Luke says that Jesus appeared over this 40-day period, he says that he uses the phrase convincing proofs. Now, this is about the strongest way possible for Luke to say that there's no doubt that Jesus was actually alive. He actually died, he was buried, and he actually rose to new life. God actually raised him. The resurrection is true. The, the phrase here could not be any stronger. Basically, what Luke is saying is that he has scoured the eyewitnesses. He's talked to the first people who saw Jesus, and he knows for certain, it's, it's undeniable evidence that Jesus is actually resurrected, that he was actually resurrected. Now, the resurrection, then, is true, Luke is saying, and it shows that he's the Messiah. So we can look at the, the, the end of the book of Luke, and we can hear Jesus 
uh, explaining to his disciples that he had to die and he had to be raised to life, that the Bible spoke of that. So Luke 24, 44 through 49, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So in highlighting the resurrection in this one brief verse, Luke is saying Jesus really is king. He really is the Messiah sent from God to save the world. But as he highlights the resurrection, he's also highlighting the ascension. So in verse 9, in a, in a pretty brief verse, he says, uh, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, cloud is not just uh, about kind of what the weather was like that day where you could ask, well, is this a cumulus cloud or a cirrus cloud? What kind of cloud is this? A cloud is, is an important, uh, especially Old Testament figure of, of the manifestation of God's presence. So you can look at Exodus 40, uh, the end of Exodus 40, and see that, that after they finish the tabernacle in the Exodus period, God's presence comes down on the tabernacle in the form of a cloud. So Jesus going up in a cloud covering him is a sign that he has entered into his glory. Or as the, the men in white, the angels proclaim, he has gone up to heaven. So that, that demands a question, right? Well, where did Jesus go when he ascended before them? Well, the angels interpret it. They say, yes, he went to heaven. We can read elsewhere in the New Testament and see that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what Colossians 3.1 says. It's saying, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And that's important because it means that Jesus is right now on his throne. He's on the throne at the right hand of God, ruling over the entire world. That's connected to Psalm 1101, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is saying that Jesus is the king. Yes, the resurrection vindicates his ministry. It says that he really is the one sent by God. He really is the Messiah. And then his ascension it says that he is seated right now in heaven, in glory, ruling over the entire uh, creation. So both of these together, the resurrection and the ascension, highlight the authority of Jesus and the fact that he is king. Now, that's significant because Luke says that Jesus is the one who commissions the church. Look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 1. Jesus says to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are at the moment, in all Judea, which is the Roman province where the Jews live, in Samaria, their neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. So this is a huge commission that Jesus gives to our followers. They are to be witnesses that Jesus is the Messiah everywhere, starting with where they are, going out to their own people, going out to their neighbors, and then going to the ends of the earth. The commission that Jesus gives is, is huge, it's far-reaching, and as we continue in the book of Acts, we'll see that that's the itinerary that they take, starting in Jerusalem, witnessing to who Jesus is, then going out to Judea and Samaria, and then going out to the ends of the earth. Now, this is important because the one who commissions matters. So think about it uh, this way. Let's say that you get a call from the Petunia Parade of Ludington, Michigan. Not necessarily the chairperson of of the Petunia Parade, but a member of the Petunia Parade Committee. And here's what they say. Uh, 
they want you, as a Christian, to travel to Iraq to defend Christians facing terrorist threats there. Now, you may very well want to come to the aid of, the, of these Christians. I've been praying for them, praying that God would protect them, praying that his hand would be on them, praying that the witness of his church would be strong during these times of trial. But you have pause because of who told you to go. I mean, the Petunia Parade, as far as what they do, is great. They put petunias down the avenue. It looks nice. They water them. They make sure everyone has their little block assigned. They do great at what they do. But sending someone to Iraq in an international relations kind of aid effort is beyond their jurisdiction. You're probably not going to go. But let's say you get a call from the President of the United States asking you to come to the aid of persecuted Christians in Iraq, and he's going to send a contingent, a special contingent of Marines to go and to support you in that effort. Well, that totally changes the picture, doesn't it? Because he has the authority to do that, and he has the power to support you so that you can actually accomplish what you've been called to do. See, authority matters. Power matters. The one who commissions the church matters. That's what's so important about what Luke is saying here. Jesus is the one who commissions the church. The church isn't some human idea. The church is Jesus' idea, commissioned by him, empowered by the spirit that he gives his people. And what this means for us is that we can trust the message of the church. We can trust the message of these apostles that Jesus commissioned for this task of bearing witness to him. Jesus really is king, resurrected from death to life to prove that he is God's king, the Messiah, and ascended right now, taking his throne at the right hand of God. And Jesus, that one, the king, the true king, the Messiah, has commissioned these apostles, the church, to witness to him and to proclaim. That's why we can believe the message of the church. And Luke isn't quite done. He wants to uh, further connect the church and its formation to God's bigger work of redemption. So he has one final note of business here. Uh, We find the uh, disciples obeying Jesus' instructions to go to Jerusalem and to wait. This is verses 12 through 14. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So notice that they are going, they are obediently following, but they're not waiting passively, that they're joining together in prayer. And as they're united in prayer, uh, it becomes clear that, that something has to be fixed here. So Luke stands up, verse 15. In those days, excuse me, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us 
beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, the main problem here is that they have to fill Judas's spot. There were 12 disciples, and now there are 11 because Jesus defected. Now, the need for 12 might not be immediately obvious to us, but it would have been clear to these Jewish followers of Jesus. See, Jesus had deliberately chosen 12 apostles, 12 disciples. The number was symbolic and representative of the nation of Israel and the whole nation of Israel, not just a contingent of it. So this signal that Jesus was, was leading a renewal, a restoration of the people of Israel. So when Judas defected, one of the 12, it, it meant that the circle of, of 12, that, that representative Israel, was, was broken and, and another was needed to complete the testimony to God's people. To try to understand the symbolic significance of, of 12 and what it meant for Israel, we could think of one of our own national symbols. We could think of the, the U.S. flag and think, well, having 11 uh, apostles instead of 12 would be like having uh, a U.S. flag without the stars or, or having a U.S. flag without the stripes. There'd be something of the, the meaning and the significance lost. You'd, you'd either lose part of the 13 colonies symbolism or you'd lose part of the, the 50 state symbolism. Something would be missing there. But, of course, it's not just symbolic. It's also representative. So we could change the analogy a little bit and say to have 11 uh, apostles instead of 12 would be like uh, the United States Senate kind of reorganizing, reconvening, and only including 40 of the 50 states in their representation. It would mean that there wouldn't be a full representation. It wouldn't be actually the United States. It would be a part of the United States. It wouldn't be the whole nation. And so Peter stands up and says, yes, we need 12 because this is all Israel involved here. And so they get to appointing a twelfth. Verses 23 through 26. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So essentially, they, they narrow it down to two. They pray to God, and they kind of roll the dice, and whoever shows up is the one who, who gets the spot. It might seem odd to us to be rolling dice for such an important kind of a task, but we have to realize that this was an accepted practice of the day. And further, it's done so that Jesus is the one who is uh, choosing Judas' replacement. And note again that as they were praying when they went back to Jerusalem, now again they are praying and asking for God's guidance at the important uh, moments of the early church. So the lot, the dice, falls to Matthias, and they take this as God's leading, and so Judas is now replaced, and the, the witnesses of Jesus' apostles are now 12 strong again to fully symbolize and represent Israel. So what's important about this passage, though, is that Luke is indicating that the church doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not disconnected from everything that God has done in the past. Indeed, it's intrinsically connected to the mission of God that was started with Abraham and his family, the people of Israel. The church is formed as a continuation of God's mission that started with Israel. So Luke is concerned throughout his gospel and throughout the, gospel, uh, the book of Acts that he's pointing out that God's work in Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament through the prophets, even in the law of Moses, and throughout. So the church, 
the apostles, the early church, and, and all who come to believe in the apostles' message about Jesus being the Messiah bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So this really is about God's promises throughout. It's about salvation history, his redemption from the very beginning with Abraham's family. But we do well to remember that all those promises in the Old Testament, they have Israel in view, but they always have more than Israel in view. So we could look at a great passage in Isaiah 49. This is uh, the words of the servant of the Lord. And to, to remember that there's, it's about Israel, but it's bigger than Israel too. This is Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is why Jesus tells his followers, his apostles, to go and be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, starting with the Jews, going out to Judea, going out to Samaria, and going to the ends of the earth. Because that is the purpose that God has given him, not just for Israel. Yes, starting with Israel, because Israel is so important to God, but, but going beyond that, because it's not enough for just this one people group to worship God, because he's the creator of all things. He is worthy of the praise of all creatures on the earth. So his mission is bigger than that. He is, he is the creator of all things. He's the king over all things. And so he is sending his son, Jesus, to go and to reclaim people to the ends of the earth for his salvation. So back to our opening question. Why are there Christians all around the globe today? Why is the church a global community of believers? It starts with God's mission of redemption, to bring his creation back to himself through the promises to Israel and Abraham's family, to the fulfillment of that in Jesus, to the commissioning by Jesus, the Messiah, of the church to proclaim that Jesus is the one through whom God's salvation comes to the ends of the earth. That's why there are Christians all over the place. It's because of the work of God. See, this is a really important lesson for us. We are not here as a church, as a community of Christians, because a series of really clever or really persuasive or really uh, organizationally gifted people throughout the years have managed to gather people together. The, the church is not a, a social club that has somehow maintained membership over a 2,000-year history because of really smart or really gifted humans. That's not what this is about. The church has grown from a little gathering of imperfect people to this global community of imperfect people because of the miraculous work of God through his spirit, through that imperfect uh, people, through the ages. And that's what Acts is going to testify to. This is not about humans being so powerful or so smart or so clever or so persuasive. This is about the power of God breaking into the world and changing things. This is what Acts is going to testify to here, and it's what it testifies through all the way throughout. This is about God's salvation found in Jesus. Jesus is the one through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. God's salvation is affected through Jesus, and those who put their faith in him will be saved. That's why God's salvation goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's because of the work of Christ affected through his power. So everything we do as a church has to come from that 
fundamental nature of who we are as the church, which is that we are a people that's gathered by God through the power of the Spirit to bear witness to Jesus, who is God's true King. The power doesn't come from us. The power doesn't come from our ability to, uh, to do the right things. The power comes from God. The only reason that we gather here as a church is because of the incredible work of God. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts. We're going to celebrate it, especially next week will be a great passage to look at as the Spirit comes in power and, and the apostles get to bear witness to what God has done. But here's the question that I would like to leave you with. Where do you fit in this story? Again, Luke is not writing just to entertain you or to tell you uh, historical lessons or anything like that. He's, he's writing because this matters for your life. So do you know who Jesus really is? Do you know Jesus as the king? Do you know that he's the one that God sent to save the world? That he really is the one that God promised and through whom all of his good promises come to fulfillment and fruition? Do you know that Jesus is the one who came to seek and save lost sinners like you and me, to bring them into God's kingdom? And then if you do know this Jesus, if he is your king, if you have found your identity in him as his servant, are you taking up the task that he has given you as one of those who knows him? Are you a witness to the fact that he really is God's king sent to save the world? That's the role of the church. That is the position and the mission of the church, to bear witness to Jesus. It's the commission that Jesus gave his first followers, and it's the commission that we as Christians take up as well. May God again send his spirit to help to confirm in our lives and in our minds, in our hearts, who Jesus really is. And then may he empower us so that we may live and speak the truth about Jesus, that he is the king, he is the glorious one, so that we live all of our lives pointing others to this wonderful king that we serve. Please pray with me. God, I pray for those who don't yet know Jesus as their king, for those who are, uh, are searching and trying to figure out what they really believe about Jesus. I pray that you send your spirit to confirm the message that Luke has proclaimed. See, this isn't just human stuff. This is the power of God at work to change the world forever. And God, for those who do know you as king, renew our joy in being able to proclaim that, that Jesus is incredible, that he is everything to us, that he is the king, and, and through him we have everything we could possibly need. Make us, again, your witnesses in our community here and throughout the world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.